and welcome to another episode of James Bond and Friends. Today is Friday the 19th of July and we're a day before the 50th anniversary of man stepping foot on the moon, which we'll come to shortly. Um, James Bond himself is busy this week. He's hiding from social media, so I'm your stand-in host, James Page, from mi6-hq.com. And I'm joined today delightfully by David, Calvin, and Bill. Would you like to introduce yourself, guys? Hi there. David Lee here. Uh, you probably know this by now if you've listened to any of the podcasts. I'm the author of the Complete Guide to the Drinks of James Bond, and I run the James Bond Dossier website. And I'm Calvin Dyson, and I run the Calvin Dyson Bond Reviewer YouTube page, where I uh, look at uh, all things Bond-related. And I'm Bill Koenig. I run a blog called The Spy Command. Good to be here. Thanks, guys. So as I mentioned in the intro, tomorrow is the 50th anniversary of Neil Armstrong uh, landing on the moon. And um, in the context of this week, which we'll skip over, I was, just, I was reading up on the, you know, the, the controversy about the, the missing ah in his first line when he lands on the moon, which changed the paradigm of what he said quite a bit. But um, in the interest of kind of celebrating mankind's um, exploration of uh, the solar system, I thought we'd talk about space and James Bond and mm. its use in the films and books and games um, as maybe a plot device, but also like does having Bond involved with space make for a better product Yes. Or not. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Shortest one ever. Yeah. Would you like to expand on that? Calvin? In the context of the sixties movies, it was it was so timely because you had the space race between the Soviets and the Americans, and for a while it looked like the Soviets were going to win. Um, so it, I mean, it was timely. It, it was inevitable that it. You know that would figure into into those sixties movies, and it, it makes sense it would come into it later as well. But from 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 my point of view, I I'm uh, of an age where I I, I can just remember uh, the, the the first moon landing. I I was four years old, and um, it's it, and so my my parents were just watching the TV constantly as the the whole mission w- was going on. Um, and I, I remember that they they stayed up all night to, to actually uh, watch the moon landing. But um, I, I think f- through that whole period of time following that, the the, the um, there was a I I had a, a real interest in space and, and science fiction because of that, and it kind of just you know. Uh, 77 we had star wars and so uh by the time of moonraker there was uh it, it was a kind of natural fit even though uh it's not one of my favorite movies now so uh it, I, I guess it was ineb- it was inevitable at the time well i grew up in the state of indiana and gus grissom who went in who went up in the second man flight uh for the u.s and he was of course supposed to be the guy who was going to land on the moon and then he was killed along with two of his colleagues in 1967, I think, in an accident during a test. And then Neil Armstrong was a, a Purdue University graduate, Purdue is in Indiana. So, uh, I mean, there was intense interest in the U.S. generally, and there was particularly intense interest in the state of Indiana as a result. So to put it in context for maybe for some of our younger listeners and hosts like 
Calvin, than myself, actually. <laughs> I'm kind of in between. Um, to put it in context, I mean, the lunar landings were 69, and of course, Bond hit the screens in 62. So Bond was ahead of... Um, was actually ahead of a lot of the developments in in reality because um, you know you and live twice was the manned orbit kind of plot line and then of course Moonraker in seventy Moonraker in seventy nine with the space shuttles preceded the actual yes. space shuttle launch. So well, also going going all the way back to Doctor No, there they updated the screenwriters updated it so there's a line where M says and now they're going to try orbiting a rocket around the moon. Now, in real life, in 1962, the U.S. was struggling just to orbit around the Earth, and the Soviets had done it first, mm-hmm. and John Glenn went in 62, earlier in 62 than when the movie came out, and he only did three orbits. It was supposed to do more, but they had to cut it off early, and it was – and then, of course, we found out much later how dicey his reentry was – but uh, yeah, I mean, so so even with Doctor No, they kind of extended the oh, the horizon a bit. No, I, I was just going to say I'd, I'd never really considered it before, but uh, in in many respects now, now you put it like that, um, you know, the Bond films were concurrent with the uh, with, with the space race, and uh, particularly in putting man on on the moon. Um, and it and it, it just shows you that there's this thing about the bomb movies being is it you know, 15 minutes into the future or something like that I think um, yeah uh, and it goes all the way back to Doctor No as it turns yeah, out yeah, yeah. exactly yeah 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 and I, I'd never I'd never thought about that before but it, it, it's spot on yeah what I find interesting about something like um, You and Live Twice from a cinematic perspective is that I think like Star Wars is obviously big science fiction. Um, influential uh, figure but then there's 2001 as well the Kubrick film um, and I can't remember exactly when 2001 came out but I'm pretty sure that You and Live Twice predates that it does um, it was, yeah. You and Live Twice is 67 and 2001 is 68 right okay yeah I just find that interesting because I know 2001 kind of sparked something of an interest in cinematic uh, space adventures and um, for You and Live Twice to come before that I see. I see some Bond fans make fun of Yulin uh, of Twice's um, special effects when it comes to space, but the thing is, I, I think by the standards of '67, it was fine. I think 2001, which came out a year later, kind of upped the game. And so, like mm. once that came out, you had to you had to up your game if you wanted to have space. Mm. Yeah, that, that's exactly what I, I was going to say. It, the thing about 2001, because I, I, I saw it a few months ago and it, it's, for me, it's kind of uh, mind-numbingly boring. It, it, just, uh, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work It's a short story stretched out to two hours. I think it's better than you yes. taking drugs beforehand, but... Uh. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, maybe. And um, but the um, but the, the special effects are the, the special effects are really really good, and, and uh, they they were way ahead of their time. A lot like Star Wars, you know, um, a, a decade mm-hmm. later, the, the the special effects in Star Wars were, were groundbreaking. And it's also one of the few movies that is actually scientifically accurate in that no, there is no sound in space. Whereupon almost every movie you see, you know, a rocket goes by. There's this like this blast sound, um, but 2001 there isn't. It's dead. You know, it's just deadly silent, and including where one of the astronauts gets killed by Hal, yeah. mm. um, 
which is probably one of the better sequences. It just takes about an hour and a half to get to it. But. <laughs> I've always been quite curious about the scene in Moonraker. Sorry, I might be skipping ahead a bit here, but there's uh, the, the bit when they're on the space station and Bond turns off the uh, the gravity thing and everyone starts floating up in the air. And the sound design kind of goes to a minimum. And I think we just have music until the gravity switch is put back on again. I did wonder if that was just supposed to be artistic license or if that they thought that that was in some way accurate like if you didn't have gravity you wouldn't have sound uh, maybe i'm reading too much into it <laughs> I, I suspect it's, it it's a license myself but yeah who knows it, yeah no no you, you you need you need gravity to to have sound it's a scientifically proven what i was thinking somewhere somewhere online in the same in the same regions of the internet where the moon landings were faked <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is an interesting thing about Diamonds Are Forever as well, isn't it? The mm. Bond does happen upon uh, some like moon set where people are being filmed, I think. It's one of the more peculiar bits of that film. What's the most, pe- what's the most peculiar thing about that? Yeah. The guys in the astronaut uniforms are moving slowly, but Bond's just... <laughs> right. <laughs> you know what's great about that? Is the, nat- the quote-unquote, you know... Um, technicians that are training stay in character mm. yeah. <laughs> they continue to move really slowly as if you know, like there's no gravity so yeah. and, they, and, and like one of the guys yells get him and then like they're still moving slowly like yeah, it's, it's because it's what, what what you don't know is that it that the inside their astronaut uh, suits or whatever you call them the space suits they're, they're just full of water so they can't move any faster <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> uh, uh. So, something I was thinking about when we when I was writing this topic was, you know, if you look at the, the time between You Only Live Twice in 67 and Moonraker in 79 is 12 years. And if you think about like the filmmaking that has ju- that jumped in that period, that short period of time, mm. I mean, I mean Moon, Moonraker was um, Oscar nominated for its effects. Mm. Yeah, 12, right. years after, 12 years after you can see the strings and You Only Live Twice, pretty much Thunderbirds-esque. <laughs> effects and then i think well between casino royale and bond 25 there's going to be um 14 years mm. yeah you, I, I you know i i have these thoughts sometimes it, it's uh in the in the within the same uh span of of da- uh, daniel craig's reign as 007 it, it, you compare it with other uh, periods in 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 the life of the the, the series, and uh, it, it's just like it goes from from you know A to Z in the same period. It's amazing, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, even if you go back into the early films, if you look at the um, the techniques, the quality, the polish, the um, just you know the production values of Doctor No to Goldfinger in the space of two years is incredible. I mean, the, the other thing is Doctor No came on the on just they were getting it was that cusp of black and white movies were on the way out mm. and certain techniques had changed and technology had changed. I think had Dr. No been made a couple of years later, it would have been a very different film mm. in 64 and 62. I absolutely agree because I believe, I'm going to forget where I read this, but when Broccoli and Saltzman went to United Artists, Broccoli made a call to Columbia where he had done a number of movies with Irving Allen. And it's like, 
It was essentially, okay, guys, here's your last chance. We're about to do a deal with UA. And essentially, Columbia was like, well, the best we could do is like a $400,000 budget. And that was, that would have been, I mean, it was a strain at a million for Dr. No. And, you know, 400,000, I mean, it would have been like a TV show. Hmm. But the talking about going from uh, Doctor Now to Goldfinger, what what was the budget of Goldfinger? I, I don't I don't recall that about at all. three million. Yes, so it was about three million. Uh, they basically went up a million. It was like Doctor No was roughly a million from Russia, from Russia with Love was about two million, and then Goldfinger was a, was about three. Hmm. So I, that probably explains some of the polish. <laughs> yeah, but I just think I mean in terms of just the craft. No, no, I, I, I'm not saying it's. I'm not saying it's everything. Uh, yes, yeah. when you when you when you change to a, a different format, then uh, there's a, a bit of a steep learning curve to, to start with, and so uh, the the changes uh, happen very yeah. very quickly. Yeah, and I'm wondering is has there been any improvement in the craft of filmmaking over Daniel Craig's tenure, other than CGI face replacement, which I think is actually a step backwards. Yeah. Um, the well, if if I think about Quantum of Solace, uh, I I think that there are a couple of sequences in there that um, for me stand out uh, because of the the direction, uh, or presumably because of the direction. Um, but it it one is although I don't particularly like the Aston Martin chase at the start of the film because it is too fast, where it starts and the um, the sound is very subdued. And you see a lot of footwork before you, you see anything yeah. else, and, it, and it's and it's just like yeah, that that is really really good filmmaking. And there's another point um, in the opera scene when when uh, the the gunfights uh, breaks out, and again it's the uh, they they play classical music uh, while that whole thing is happening, and so. Yeah, and it's it's very very non-Bond. You know, you think in in a different film, it would just have the James Bond theme playing there, but uh, it, it, it's it's very very uh, arty and very very uh, cool. I think. So here's a question for you all. Um, which has got the um, the best sat- satellite? Which has got the best satellite? <laughs> yeah. Hmm. I'm a fan of the GoldenEye satellite. Um, I, I think Diamonds Are Forever stands out because obviously Diamonds, but um, I think the funny thing about Diamonds Are Forever is that... that 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 should be a big deal that Blofeld has like a huge laser in space. That should be like the biggest oh, villain. Still up there. Well, yeah, <laughs> it should be like the biggest villain's weapon ever. And yeah, it it never feels quite so threatening. I I think it says more about the film as a whole than just that particular device. Um, well, also, it's as if when they got to doing Die Another Day, it's like. Hey, you remember when we did Diamonds Are Forever? Let's do it up like much bigger. So it's like mm. a movie. Yeah. It's the same kind of weapon, but it's like bigger and much grander. And yeah. Because you know, in Diamonds, it's like a relatively small satellite. It just has all those diamonds generate the laser beam. Mm. 
which yeah. is, by the way, science fact, they needed to use rubies, but it's not as good a title, is it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, and, yeah, rubies are forever doesn't quite work as well. By the way, just a, a quick aside. Um, so with Dr. No, there were, um, you know, it didn't come out in the U.S. until the spring of, late spring of 63. But in Hollywood, of course, they could get advanced copies. And so it greatly affected two potential projects. One was, you know, Charles K. Feldman, who had the Casino Royale rights. He had approached Howard Hawks about doing a Casino Royale movie. Hmm. Hawks was interested and they had some meetings and they had contacted Lee Brackett about maybe doing a screenplay. And then Hawks saw Dr. No and said, uh, I can't compete with this. No, forget it. And so, so that was the end of that for Hawks. And then the other thing was Joseph Barbera, as in Hanna-Barbera, the cartoon guys, he saw Dr. No and was like, okay, this is big. We have to get in on this. And so that was the origin of Johnny Quest, the cartoon show, which the American audience for this podcast will recognize. And in fact, it just came out on Blu-ray this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was an earlier DVD release and the plot of the very first episode is like very Dr. No-esque uh, because a hostile foreign power is like blasting ships with a laser beam. And what the villain's ultimate plot is, there's going to be a man in the moon rocket, as they call it, and he's going to blast it with his laser beam. Um, and it, of course, the plot gets foiled. But uh, I mean, the, the influences of Dr. No are like unmistakable. So... Impact. Yeah, for those for those not familiar with Johnny Quest, it's basically yeah, for those not familiar with it, it's basically Archer for kids in the sixties. <laughs> yeah. Right, because the lead character he happens to be the son of America's most prominent scientist, and they have an American agent bodyguard. So you know, it's like have, you know, your your tutor is also an agent with a license to kill. So there you go. <laughs> Uh, I mean, talk, talking about the best uh, satellite, uh, I, I was going to say the same thing as Calvin Goldeneye, but for a completely different reason, because I, I, I can hardly remember any of the satellites properly. But um, the my reason for saying Goldeneye is that uh, I visited the, the dish in, in Puerto Rico back in 2005 where they shot some scenes so that, mm. that's the that's the one that sticks for me it's uh, it yeah. is quite impressive so if you're in Puerto Rico and it, it is a fantastic country um, a lot of problems but uh, yeah. really really good place to, to visit and I've got some very very good friends there so hi Puerto Rican friends I also quite like how um, the earth looks in Goldeneye and Moonraker spring mm. to mind anyway. It's almost like this like blue marble, like yeah. a huge blue marble. And it, it's not terribly photorealistic. Um, it's kind of uh, impressionistic almost, but I, I quite like that. Um, I can't remember if it's the same in You and Live Twice or if they used a different kind of model. Um, it's a little better in than You Only Live Twice. You Only Live Twice is okay, but... Mm. It- with Moonraker. I was about to say, in terms of Bond films that got a nomination but didn't win, in in a way, Moonraker's nomination, it's amazing that they got it because um, the big U.S. special special effects houses quoted a price and Yeah, decided, yeah, that's that's too much. Okay, boys, how are we going to do this? And we'll get Derek Meddings and some salt shakers. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and which, but it's but you know like I, I saw it five times in the theater on first release. It doesn't look like it. It looks it looks as good as anything else that was going on at the time. It, mm. it 
And then I, I'm, I remember reading about how they had to wind the film in the camera however many times and just, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, it's like, I'd be falling apart thinking about yeah. all <laughs> But one that. thing that annoys me about the shots of like the space shuttle um, in Moonraker is that if the space shuttle is on a particular track, there are no stars. Um, you can see it's kind of yeah. like a completely black bar, which the shuttle is moving along. And that just, I, I, I never noticed it, you know, watching it on video and DVD, but then on Blu-ray, it yeah. obviously becomes more noticeable. It's, it's to do with how they shot it, where yeah. basically they rolled the camera, the film, as Bill said, back through the camera every single time they put an element on. Yeah, yeah, and exactly. they couldn't have any element crossing paths with another because yeah. you would see it bleed the lumen and the this, luminosity of it bleeds through this actually ha- this actually happened in at least one film that i've seen that the star background shows through the spacecraft sometimes i i, I wish i could remember yeah. what film it was mm. i mean i i think in terms of rolling the film back it was something like 96 times i something like that it was and then i remember reading at the time when when the film was having to go through customs they were like had their fingers crossed <laughs> didn't get damaged then i think it was particularly one of those great like wide shots where it's you know drax's men and the u.s marines are all out like shooting each other and there must be like you know 40 individual characters on screen all firing lasers in front of the space shuttle and it's just it, it's really remarkable <laughs> that they achieved it it's quite special when when moonraker came out or, or shortly after it came out i i bought the airfix um space shuttle that was that had all the um the graphics for for the moonraker i, I don't, rem- hmm. don't remember which moonraker it was but uh, um so i i spent many hours with uh plastic parts and glue and stuck fingers and stuff and uh, eventually had a a Moonraker, and if I still have it, had yeah. it, I would give it to you, Calvin. Ah, uh, thank you. <laughs> that, that that means a lot in sentiment. Thank you. <laughs> also, just as a quick aside, in terms of interests of space, other spy movies also got involved with spies. Or, I'm sorry, with space. So, like in like Flint, the second Flint movie with James Coburn. It had a space sequence. Flint actually went up into space, fought the villain, and then he, at the end of the movie, he's with two women Russian cosmonauts making out. (laughs) But, um, but that's that's just I only mentioned that just shows the intense interest in space. And then the other movie, and this relates to Moonraker, was in 1966 called Kiss the Girls and Make Them Die which bears a number of interesting similarities to Moonraker, which was 13 years later, hmm. you have an American agent working with an English agent. And Dylan hmm. is concerned about the, uh, oh, the ecology has gotten way out of hand. So he's going to like send up a satellite that's going to send down radiation that's going to make everybody sterile. And, but, He's got all these beautiful women in his, uh, you know, basically frozen. So when time comes to repopulate Earth, he'll take care of it for us. Um, it's ridiculous, of course, but just the number of and, and the main um, location shooting is in Brazil. And mm-hmm. um, and we talked in an earlier podcast how the earlier Bond movies like emphasize one or two locations, whereupon more recent ones go four, five, six, whatever. So main thing that kiss the girls and make them die emphasizes is rio and brazil 
And I don't know if it's Iguazu Falls or not, but it looks really similar. And that's like the main titles are, are those falls. And, um, and they actually worked in the Christ the Redeemer statue into the story and all this stuff. So it's, it's not up to Bond standards, don't get me wrong, but they really made the most of the uh, Brazilian locations. And you, you said that you you said that you saw Moonraker five times at the at the cinema built. Uh, I did. If if Calvin was the same age as you, I'd expect it from him. And there there was a kind of a missed opportunity there, wasn't there? You <laughs> <laughs> had a time machine. Well, back in those days, there was one. There was no home video, at least not commonly, not common home video. <laughs> I, uh, I was actually uh, it was. The year it was the summer between my junior and senior year in college, and I was like working at this little newspaper on an internship, and so I went a couple times just because I didn't have anything really better to yeah. do. And I remember the last time I went, it was like there weren't many of us in theaters. It was the last night it was going to be in the theater, and I was like the last person there, and the projection projectionist turned it off before the James Bond will return, and I said. Hey, <laughs> and then I waved at him. Thank you. Um, <laughs> even though I knew what it said, I just like, it was just, I wanted that complete experience. Yeah. Oh, the amount of times I've been the last person left in the cinema <laughs> waiting mm-hmm. for the end of a Daniel Craig film credits. And the person's just there waiting for me to leave so they can sweep up the popcorn. Yeah. I was the, I was the last one out of the last Spectre screening on the West Coast of the US. Wow. Yeah. I, so. I, used to, I used to sometimes go to uh, screenings on, on a Monday morning uh, when I lived in Barcelona, and it, it was just cause, uh, because of, uh, because I worked for myself and I kind of had that flexibility, and I, it was just like, well, screw that. Everyone else can be at work, but I'm just going to go and uh, do something else. The great <laughs> thing about Monday morning screenings is that you get very, very few people are there and sometimes nobody mm. and so uh yeah I, I i always try and sit through right to the end of the film so sometimes it would just be me in the cinema and uh, i'd see it all the way through and <laughs> if you just don't leave you can catch the next show in as well they, 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 <laughs> don't, they don't let you do that anymore they kick you out yeah. oh well. no fun yeah, because in in the old days, it was quite common for people to arrive in the middle of a film and then leave halfway through uh, the next screening, which is a completely bizarre thing to do. Just uh, check the news listings. Something like that happened with me. I, it was a Dr. No from Rush with Love double feature. And like I got there late, about a half hour into Dr. No. So like, I watched the rest of the movie. And I saw all of From Russia with Love. And then I stayed there. I caught the that first half hour Dr. No on the next showing, and then, then I left. But okay. You're allowed to do it. Yeah. That was a long time ago. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we, we didn't have uh, the luxury of smartphones to be able to check listings or just uh, ask Siri or Google or whatever it is uh, where, the, where the nearest showing of the, the, uh, the Bond film is. It used to be a bit more difficult <laughs> in those days. We used to struggle. <laughs> Well, also word of mouth was a thing yeah. back then. Um, so, think about satellites. You know, I just jokingly mentioned, well, the, the diamonds are still up there, right? And yeah, it's how many yeah, years the later? Question, when when um, are they going to come down so, and where? Yeah, and mm. and yeah, what happened to Icarus? Hmm. 
Because, yeah. you know, they switched it off. They switched the controls off by crashing the Antonov, but is that still up there as well? Yeah, so. On 26. Yeah, maybe. On 26. Maybe if we ever get diamonds. Well, if we brought them both down, we could, like, dump the valuation of De Beers because <laughs> we flood the market. That's the thing. But also, remember, like, there have been, like, space stations that have, like, eventually come down. Like, I remember in the summer of 79, same year that Moonraker came out. There was they one were- last year, Bill. There was one, like, the Chinese satellite crashed to somewhere. It was, they th- I think they thought it was going to hit Australia last year. And it ended up hitting the ocean instead. Mm-hmm. Well, that newspaper I told you about where I had the internship, internship at they said go out and ask people what what would happen if the space station like collapsed you know came on your yard like are you kidding me <laughs> like this, this man on the street interview like i was so i, I felt so ashamed <laughs> you, you imagine that this 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 out of control um space station red hot comes through the atmosphere and just as it's going to smash into somebody's house and demolish this whole mile uh area and just completely flatten it in in a city it just it it's um it's stabilizing uh legs come out and it, it's booster rockets come out and it just makes a soft landing in somebody's garden (laughs) (laughs) so satellites that aren't up there anymore fictionally obviously the two golden eye satellites right Mm. um because (laughs) here's the other thing um blofeld's satellite diamonds are forever private enterprise still up there probably working gustav graves private enterprise it's big space mirror still up there government ran program <laughs> one use they blow up <laughs> you would think there'd be a computer hacker who could like hack into into uh, uh, Will- Willard White Industries or whatever for diamonds and <laughs> whatever the others and could like suddenly like start firing lasers down on the earth because yeah Boris should have just done that it would have been much easier point <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think the the special effects I think that let you only live twice down the most are the actual effects of the weapon being used, where everything glows red, and then you get you know front proje- projected um, person screaming. Um, it's that that sequence is probably the worst. Oh, in in diamonds, yeah, 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 um, yeah, in diamonds. Yeah, yeah, it's the it's like the, the one that always sticks out to me is the uh, the North is it North Korea I think it is or yeah, South Korea the, the guy guns. screaming with holding yeah, his helmet and it's again that's what I mean about that like that whole thing um, like Blofeld having that weapon should feel like the biggest like most stakesy like Thunderball times twenty um, thing and it, it just doesn't it's um, yeah quite a shame really. really. And all the world's powers have basically told Blofeld to, uh, yeah, piss off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It does, however, lead to one of the wittiest lines about, oh, the satellite is now over Kansas. Yeah. Kansas. No one will hear about it for years. <laughs> I you do know, love that Bill, line. It's it's thing, every time I bump into somebody from Kansas, I use that line. Every single time. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. Uh, it's absolutely brilliant. great. I was just thinking, just talking about the Golden Eye. Um, is there any shot from space in the world is not enough? I don't think there is, but the other Brosnan films all have them, don't they? There's always yes. a shot of some satellite in space mm-hmm. doing something. Um, there, there's nothing in the world is not enough, though, is there? I'm racking my brain. No. 
I think it would be a bit of a stretch if you found like a computer display of a tracking or something. Um, Oh, (laughs) doesn't doesn't Gabor use a satellite phone in the film? I think so. When he's walking around outside. Uh, And Q has, or R rather, has the... um, Thermo imagery, yes, whatever, at the very end of the film. I just can't remember if we actually. There's no, there's no sure. space shot. No. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, but it's but it's obvi- The image was generated by a satellite. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. So by that logic, then there has been the use of space in the Craig era because Blofeld uses a satellite phone, as does Mister White, as does Le Chief, mm. Casino Royale. Hmm. But yeah, there's no space in the Craig movies. So, um, but Calvin, Craig has been into space, hasn't he? He has. As James Bond. Yes, in 007 Legends. Um, or his likeness, anyway. He didn't do the voice in that no. game. But uh, yeah, there was a series of levels based on Moonraker, which did not use the Ken Adam designs for Drax's space shuttle, which was a big disappointment. The designs end up being quite generic. I would have thought that the... The, the most appealing thing about making a game and having levels based on Moonrake would be that you mm-hmm. would you know get to go around those uh, locations and enjoy it, but no, sadly not. Um, but yeah, Drax is there, Jaws is there. You have fights floating around in space, and unlike in the film, Bond in the game actually gets like sucked out of the space station at one point, and you get to shoot bad guys in space, um, which is all very good. So that also reminds me, I think in the Christopher Wood novelization, Bond takes a spacewalk. Oh. I meant I meant to grab it before this podcast, and I didn't, because I have it downstairs. Um I believe I and I forget why he has to do this, but I think at one point Bond has to get on a spacesuit and do a spacewalk to get like from one point of the satellite to another. Um anyway, I, I I think I think that's in there. A bit somewhere. like going out the submarine to come back in again in the world is not enough, basically. Yeah, exactly. Right. So the other game that used space was um, Nightfire, which prior to that was Phoenix Rising, which prior to that was going to be Moonraker. Because um, you know, I, I had no idea until I saw your notes for this podcast yeah. that that was we were, uh, the case. Yeah, we were working with EA at the time, and. Um, towards the end of the game's development, actually not in the beginning. And then, so we got the whole story about, you know, they wanted to do a, an adaptation of Moonraker and then they had to change the name to Phoenix Rising and then they had to change the name to Moonraker. Mm-hmm. And at the very, very, very end of development, they got Brosnan's likeness. Um, um, so that was a very late edition and they got the script to die another day a week before the game shipped. Wow. So, and it was supposed to all tie in. Huh. So, um, that's why there's bits of moonrakeriness in mm. Lightfire. No, that makes um, a lot of sense because after, after that, I did start thinking, like, oh, why actually? Yeah, that makes sense. Like, dark haired villain with goatee yep. who has like a French brunette like assistant who gets right. killed and then Bond teams up with a, another a friendly agent. Mm-hmm. It was all just like, oh, wow, yeah, no, that does uh, make, yeah, make a lot of sense. <laughs> but you do actually go into space, it's just the last level um, yeah. of Nightfire. And it's a very small level. Uh, it's not on the scale of 007 Legends, but it, yeah. it, it's very fun nonetheless. Uh, yeah. And, and that's one of, that's probably my favorite Bond game, Nightfire. I love that yes. game so much. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. So the other the other kind of like space connections I was thinking of was the original plot to A View to a Kill. Yes. Was was redirecting the path of Halley's Comet into the Earth, and then David Bowie was going to hold us all to ransom. That would have been brilliant, wouldn't it? (laughs) At the time the movie was going to come out, Halley's Comet was like coming, you know, coming back toward Earth. So it was the same thing with Moonraker, where they were like hoping to have the real shuttle come out (laughs) when the movie came out, but that didn't happen because the real shuttle didn't come out till like the early eighties. But, uh, but yeah, the idea was to like play off Halley's Comet coming back to Earth for the first time in however many decades, but you know, like since the early 20th century. Yeah, and it was it was a similar plot to one of the fan films I think I mentioned on um, previous podcast that I think turned into an audio project and then never happened. But that hmm. that the, the the concept of that was, you know, an industrialist um, was going to have the the capability of shooting down anything that was coming to the Earth, and then. At the last minute, he decided, you know what, guys, my price went up hmm. and held the world to ransom. And I vaguely remember reading a, like a Richard Maybaum interview. It's like, well, we were going to do this Haley's Comet thing, but we decided to go with something much more realistic, which was create an earthquake that. Oh, that's much more realistic. Thanks, dude. I do wonder, though, Bill, how was. How is David Bowie going to actually change the path of Halley's Comet in 1985? I'm not sure. It's, <laughs> it, I'm guessing that. Was- well, he was he, he was he was an alien, so right. he probably had his. <laughs> he was going to be dazzled with his two eyes with different colors, like. <laughs> well, you know, the plot of Armageddon, I think, is like they would set a nuke off in proximity to change the course, right, in space. Right. So maybe something along those lines. Maybe they didn't even get that far <laughs> thinking how it would actually be done. <laughs> it might have been like, what are we thinking? Like, because it's not, it's not like a view to a kill is like really that realistic. It's so if it had really done Haley's comment into the plot, eh, it might have been a little over the top. <laughs> <laughs> so it might have improved it. <laughs> Just saying. Perhaps it, it's not one of my. It's not one of my favorites. So space has not been used at all in the Craig era, and um, it, I remember in the early days of Bond Twenty Five gestation, people were considering, "Oh, it's going to be Elon Musk is going to be the villain, and maybe we'll have space." Um, as you know, um, SpaceX is his big um, investment. Um, well, that's remember, obviously Elon not going to come. For his Twitter avatar, for a for a time, had a picture of himself. You couldn't see his face, and it was like him holding a stuffed cat or a, a toy stuffed cat. Yes, that's and, right. Yeah, and, and he had his like finger in sort of like a Doctor Evil type pose, and he really did this on Twitter for like a while. So. It's like into it, so he probably would have volunteered to play the part. <laughs> <laughs> so with that opportunity gone, and and I think Rami Malek's rumor also kind of sparked that whole thing up again. Mm. Um, but can anybody foresee a space plot in? I'm going to say the reboot in Bond Twenty Six, going mm. onwards, mm. or are we going to continue this more down to earth, 
Yeah, I, I, I think it, I think it maybe depend on what happens with uh, the the kind of new space race in you know with with China uh, looking to put man on the moon and 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 now thinking about putting man on, on Mars. If that really kicks off, then then probably yeah, it will be something that that uh, filters into into Bond in, in some way, even if Bond doesn't go into space himself. Right. And it's also not just governments anymore. You've got Jeff Bezos. He's also got his space projects. Uh, the, 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 there's Virgin as well. Jeff Bezos and his giant yeah. penis rocket. Yeah, you. <laughs> Everybody's watched John Oliver. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so so in, in, in any case, I guess what I'm trying to say is like with Bond 26, if you want to bring in a space plot, you have more um, you have more avenues to approach it. I think the the Bond series kind of got away with it, didn't they? Doctor No was ahead of what the US was actually doing, and the US caught up with the film. Yeah, You Only Live Twice was ahead of the space race, and things yeah. kind of well it didn't go that way, but it kind of caught up with it. Moonraker, that shuttle may never have taken off; might have had a bad, you know, it could have gone horribly wrong for the US space program, but got away with it, right? Um, Maybe it's time to leave it alone and not try and not try and figure it out. Because they must have been a, a year ahead of NASA putting the space shuttle into into space. Because I, I think I was oh, fifteen. I, I think I was fifteen because I, I remember I actually I wanted to see the launch, but I, I was away on a school trip at the time in France, and I'm pretty sure I was fifteen. The first U.S. space launch uh, shuttle launch was. 81, I think, um, two years after Moonraker. Um, wow. And the other thing was that the shuttle program had a lot of problems. I mean, um, and I forget the details, but there were like a ton of problems. It was it was a big mess for a while. And they eventually like succeeded doing it, but it was like it cost a lot more than it was supposed to, co- supposed to cost. Well, which, oh, to be fair, that's, program, a, that's a government that's program, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. I've just realized, I, I, I've just realized I, I said I was 15, I think I was 15 when the, the rocket, when the space shuttle went up, but without actually giving anybody a reference, that that would have been 1980. It could have been 81 when I was 16, though. But I was about to say, the, um, the uh, 60 Minutes, the U.S. news magazine on CBS, I remember they did a big about all the problems with the shuttle and they like worked in a clip from Moonraker like Roger Moore saying Moonraker uh, in M's office so they like got that clip in there and then mentioned all the problems that it you know occurred okay and um We've been talking about the the films and space, but well, actually, what about the books? Because the the whole mm. it, it wasn't it, it wasn't a space ro- rocket in Moonraker, but it was certainly a, a intercontinental intercontinental ballistic missile and missile. Uh, yeah, so, right. And, and so that, that that comes from from the books. Moonraker was uh, what 50, 56 or something like that. Can't, I can't, 55, 55 for uh, yeah. Moonraker. Yeah, so uh, so you know, uh, you know, Bond has all always had uh, the, this connection in in that respect. The filmmakers must have really like loved like holding off on using that title. Like it was surprising me when Moonraker was only like the eleventh film mm. when they decided to actually use that title. Um, 
Yeah, because it just kind of lends itself so well to, you know, Bond going to space yeah, and everything. And I, but I, but it, it's also quite an arbitrary title, so you can just, yeah, name, like, you know, a missile. It's a bit like Thunderball. Right. It can be anything. Yeah. So Right, and, and, and they had already announced For Your Eyes only as the title for the movie. And then, yeah. oh, Star Wars is big. Yeah. Oh, let's switch here. We'll go with yeah. here's the title, because that obviously will lend itself to a more science fiction. I mean, just by the name, mm-hmm. it just... So they so they did. Um, So, Bill, question for you: Um, When Diamonds came out um, in '71, and there's that silly scene as we just mentioned about Connery walking through the moonset. Were there, how rife was the moon landing conspiracy two years after it happened in 71? Or was Bond ahead of that as well, making a joke about it? I think Bond was ahead of that as well. My recollection is like that whole nonsense occurred later in the decade. In 1978, there was a movie called Capricorn yes. One, With where, that, where Jason NASA thinks a mission to Mars, and, um, and it's got. It had James Brolin, it had O.J. Simpson, it had Sam Watterson, it had Telly Savalas, it had Elliot Gould. It was a big all-star movie. So, like, by by the end of the decade, this notion, oh, NASA faked all that stuff, kind of took hold. So that's what Capricorn 1 held on to. So I think it was like a, it was a bit after Diamonds Are Forever where that stuff became popular. Yeah, and then towards um, towards the end of, the landings, um, Bill, like interest had died down, right? Um, yes, because um, I remember watching a documentary and he's passed away now, but it was like the astronaut who was like, like the commander of the last moon landing. He was like talking about when they were like getting ready to blast. I said, look, he said, just let's get the hell out of here because nobody cared anymore. And so when it was Apollo 13, where everything went bad and, they all might get killed that suddenly like people had become blasé between 69 and 72 or three Americans suddenly didn't care anymore until that mission went bad. And then it became this, this soap opera, would they make it, which they did. They got home safely, but um, it's amazing how uh, fickle people can be about this stuff because in 69, it was like, this is like an accomplishment ages by 71 72 yeah who cares yeah it's kind of striking isn't it and just to tie all this yeah. together i love pierce brosnan's quote um and i'm going to attribute it to him whether he came up with it or not which was you know um more people have walked on the moon than played james bond yes <laughs> so <laughs> that's right you know which um because yeah. you always had two for each mission where they made it to the moon yeah so statistically um, you're more likely to walk on the moon than play James Bond, which, <laughs> which is quite amazing, really. Yeah. So, Calvin, Calvin, if you had to choose between playing James Bond or walking on the moon, which would you do? <laughs> oh, uh, could I play Q instead? Is that an option? That's more suitable to my talents, my range. And also keep this in mind, okay, those moon landings, those were three crews. You needed one guy to fly the thing while the other two were like down on the moon 
So like I was listening earlier today to a, uh, and it was an old interview with Michael Collins. Yeah. who was like flying over while Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin were down on the moon. And the host, you know, again, the host asked, well, did you feel lonely? He said, no, he didn't feel lonely because, you know, it's like the whole, because he just, they all felt the weight of the world on their shoulders. Um, but yeah, I mean, but the thing was, if it had gone wrong, he might have then have had to go home while they were like dead on the surface of the moon, you know, mm. but people forget how precarious that whole moon. Uh, well, even before the moonshot, the, the whole Mercury, Apollo, Mercury, Gemini, Apollo thing was, and it was just NASA wanted. Yeah. You, if, if, if something, if something went wrong, there wasn't very much hope at all, which is why Apollo 13, the, the story of Apollo 13 is amazing. Yeah. It's, they shouldn't have made it back at all. Right. Uh, the fact that they did is just uh, incredible. It's still amazing. And people still don't appreciate it as much as they should, I think. <laughs> so the only other kind of space hook that I was thinking about with the Bond series to bring this back on track that we haven't talked about is Trigger Mortis. Mm. And I totally forgot when I was when we were thinking about this podcast that that whole book's set against the space race. Yes, fifty seven. Well, except I think I think it wasn't the uh, first successful um, Russian space shot. It was a satellite in fifty seven, right? Sputnik. Mm. All right. Um, but yeah, fifty seven is like more or less the beginning of the space race. Yeah, it was Sput- and- Sputnik was fifty seven. And then later, they like not much later that suddenly there's like shooting dogs in space, including one that didn't bother to bring back, like uh, animal cruelty. Um, <laughs> I think that was Laika, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I had totally forgotten about that, but I saw something related to this 50th anniversary of man going to the moon. It's like. That's right. I made me feel bad yeah, for the yeah, dog. Yeah. Well, nobody's shooting my dog into space. There you go. Yeah. Good for I, you. It doesn't, doesn't matter how much money NASA offer me. No. Any final thoughts, guys, on the space and bond as we wrap up this segment of. Well, I'll just summarize something I said earlier. It's like the, the launch of the bond films coincided with the space race. So it was always going, it, it's probably inevitable that it would have an influence. And like I said, it was like very subtle in Dr. No, it got with, with Yoli of twice. It was like much more obvious, but just the whole mood of the time these were reflected in the bond films. And, um, it's just, it, I was a kid then, but like, I remember it and it's just, it was like, it was like really intense. And it's like a background of a lot of things going on at the time. Yeah. I think one of the, um, one of the more interesting things of any of the official books in the last 20 years was um, the legacy book. Um, because mm. there was a little like column inch for every film about what was happening in the world, right? To put it in context of when the film was released, because for most fans, the early films are outside of their, you know, they weren't around at the time. I mean, even for Daniel Craig, right? He was born after Dr. No came out. Um, and I think that's maybe something that's often been overlooked as to the cultural context of the time of release of the films and not just in sort of political stances, but also world events and maybe how the Bond films creatively were influenced by world events or they were ahead of them in some cases and lucked out, right? Like the space shuttle was a good example of, Mm. well, they were trying to do it to to coincide and 
you know, came out later. It was good for the VHS release, right? Anyone. <laughs> um, but that's something that I don't think has really been documented very well. Um, no, it, it's it's something I'd, I'd never really considered before. But it's uh, it, it's it's a it's a very good very good point. And you know this and what I said before about you know being I I don't remember if it's it's being fifteen minutes in the future or whatever somebody once said and I don't even remember who said it. Cubby Broccoli or Michael G. Wilson or somebody. I think but, it was. Uh, yeah. You know, it, and it, it it's like it it's uh, Bond is slight science fiction. You know, it's got it's got its toe in science fiction, but it's not 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 its foot. Mm. I think it's a shame that we've lost some of that um, recently as well with the Craig era. And I can only assume that as commercial space travel becomes more and more viable, and like we were talking about earlier, man going to Mars, all that kind of stuff. I guess it's going to have to factor into future films somewhere because it's just going to become so normalized i guess no I, absolutely yeah yeah F- felix light is going to be like get your ass to mars <laughs> i was about to say in 2012 for the 50th anniversary i did do a post about okay here's what was going on in 1962 and like i mentioned john glenn but like other non-space stuff as well and it's just i think the one that's most commonly hooked onto bill is JFK's assassination and from Russia with love. I think that's in 63. Yeah. yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. I've written a lot about that. I did a lot. I went and bought life magazines and papers from the time and stuff to put articles together for the magazine on that. I think that's the one that is, you know, most often um, brought up as a cultural touchstone, I think. Um, but- and apparently my understanding is like Pierre Salinger, who was JFK's press secretary when they were like, so like I was doing this, the context was they did this mammoth article about JFK's reading habits. And he was a voracious reader. He read like six to eight newspapers a day, like read all these books. And a lot of books he read were like history and political and all this stuff. So then wife asked for a list of his 10 favorite. And so it was um, Pierre Salinger who apparently said, you ought to like throw in like one popular book. And they like talked about a couple and then they went with from Russia with love. And so that's how that ended up on that list. Hmm. Um, and of course, then when Fleming is writing his last novel, Bond is Bond is like carrying around a copy of profile profiles and courage in his suitcase, right. hmm. which was JFK's 1956 book. Um, and it's sort of like, you know, Fleming kind of doing a salute to JFK like, Thanks, JFK, for all those increased book sales you helped me get. <laughs> and um, of course, JFK obviously kicked well, kicked off, but actually, you know, pushed the space program um, to the front and center of U.S. politics, didn't he? Right. With that famous speech. Um, so, tying it all back, um, from Russia with Love was also one of the last films that he watched at the White House yes. for his assassination. Um, because right, they got, because he would have seen it before it came out in the U.S. Yeah. in theater. The, the, White, come out the White House got a print um, before right. it was out of the States. So, yeah, he watched it, um, I think, in, was it the week or the two weeks before his assassination? It was very close. Pretty close, yeah. yeah. So JFK ties us up, I think, on our space race chat. Um, yeah. So yeah, who knows what's going to happen in the future? But I think you've got a good point, David, which is like the James Bond films were, if not science fiction, they were futurist, futurists, futurists yeah. looking ahead as yeah. to what was coming down. And um, mm. I'd say the Craig era has not really done 
anything in that regard. Mm -hmm. Spectre was kind of an attempt at that, but it was very uneven. I mean, that whole business about surveillance and so forth, but. Yeah, I think um, rather than being 15 seconds in the future there, they were kind of 15 seconds behind there. Yeah, right. <laughs> yes, yes. and, and I, I guess it, I, yeah. I guess it's actually quite difficult at the moment because things are moving so fast to to really um, be ahead of the game. Well, true. In terms of technology, I'd agree. Yeah, mm. absolutely. But geopolitics, yeah, yeah. yeah sure. But if but, you really want to be ahead, you have to do like Stanley Jack Kirby pseudoscience, where it's like stuff that hasn't been still hasn't been invented yet but that gets you the comic book area it's like and i'm not sure bond fans want to go there particularly so no no invisible suit like in um, everything or nothing unstable <laughs> molecules like still haven't been invented <laughs> <laughs> So moving on to some non-spoiler news, um, mm. somebody discovered this week that Eon Productions had trademarked Q Branch. Yeah, yeah, that that, mm. that that was quite a find. It was quite quite amusing because it, he he was actually looking to see if they had uh, trademarked um, the the title. Name, of, name of the film, and uh, he, instead he turned up this, which which uh, I think goes back to, to last week, in fact, and uh, yeah, that they. Um, yeah, and so uh, it's, it's Dan Jack, in, in fact, because they're the they're the um, yeah. the trademark holder for all the Bond stuff. Um, they um, have gone after a range of it's, it's accessories for, for mobile phones and tablets, but also things like um, you know rucksacks and travel bags yeah. and stuff like that. <laughs> it's, it's it's kind of funny because the the um, trademark classifications were written you know a century ago. Mm-hmm. So some of the terminology, if you look at the classifications, are like perfumeries and things it's like mm. yeah. This, <laughs> what they're going to do is bring out Q Branch aftershave, probably. But um. <laughs> right. So we may uh, look forward to like overpriced Q Branch bland. Uh, excuse me, yeah. Q Branch. And items uh, like oh, a hundred dollars for this. Oh, thank you. Thanks very much. Yeah. If anybody's uh, if anybody's worked for a corporation with a marketing department that does trade shows, we've all seen the websites where you can go and get your logo put on golf tees and USB sticks mm-hmm. and alarm clocks right. and all this kind of crap. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, it's not that. Yeah. Well, I, I noticed that um, one of the obvious things for me at the moment would have been cat food, but they're not going for that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Or the, the, the Q branch seal of approval on Earl Grey. Yeah. <laughs> I did always quite like those Q mugs that came out. Um, I think it was uh, to tie into uh, Skyfall. I never got one myself. But, uh, yeah, Q branch seems like a logical thing for them to merchandise. It's kind of nerdy enough that the fans would quite like it, and it, it's just so like catchall. You can do any kind of technology or pen or. You know, the phone case, whatever you yeah, want. Yeah, no, it, it, it exactly. Sense. Yeah, yeah. So, but I, I, so I, I, I guess we're looking for that to be launched about the time of um, mm. the new if bomb they, probably if the approvals get done in time. 
because <laughs> mm. here's the catch you know so any third-party licensing company that's doing any product obviously has to get sign off from eon slash danjack right on any product they bring out if they're busy making a film stuff doesn't happen quickly so mm. we'll see yeah or, or maybe maybe it'll be the the, the fill-in between uh, the five-year gap between bond 25 oh, and bond 26 or longer <laughs> i didn't say that i'm sorry mm. <laughs> yeah, so maybe a Keybrush cat bed and um, other bits yeah, and pieces. Uh, I yeah. saw somebody, I think, on Etsy or somewhere was doing, uh, they'd replicated all the stickers that Q had on his laptop. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, brilliant. I want them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're, they're now going to be, uh, they're now going to get a lawyer's letter. Right. <laughs> all these generic things. Uh, yeah, funny story, actually, talking about that. Um, the Bulldog in Skyfall. was supposed well okay so i'm going to caveat this with reportedly allegedly and we were told this by several people but by no means is this documented fact that the props department had to make something to go on um m's desk right as part of the whole finale right um, mm. And instead of making something original so they would own the rights to it, somebody from the props department went to the market and got the Royal Dalton Bulldog. Thought, yeah, that'll do. Um, oh. And then reportedly, allegedly, you know, asterisk, um, that led then to a whole difficult legal thing where then they had to go to Royal Dalton and say, oh, yeah, we're using your thing in the film and blah, blah, blah. Uh. So that was not planned, apparently. Wow. Mm-hmm. But I have one on my desk, so thank you, Royal Dalton. <laughs> but yeah, so who knows what other stuff they're going to come out with for Q-Branch. But I'm surprised this was not done years ago. You know, it's like the most obvious thing you can merch off Bond is, you know, even if it's tie clips or something, it's you, you know, Q-Branch. Um, the other thing was there was a surprise um, Thunderbolt screening in LA, which I didn't get a heads up about either. Um, and Luciana Paluzzi um, was there in person. Well, I knew they were going to have the screening, but I didn't know about Luciana Paluzzi being there because the uh, it's the new Beverly Cinema, yeah. which is owned by Quentin Tarantino. So they had they had made known they were going to be showing five Bond films in uh, July, each Wednesday at 2 o'clock local time. But Suddenly, like I saw it just flared up on uh, social media about, hey, she's here and her grandparents or grandchildren are there. It's like first time her grandkids have seen her on the big screen. And um, Hmm. it was apparently like a big, well, the fans loved it. It was, and it was apparently like a very full screening. Yeah. The new Beverly Cinema has always done a lot of stuff with Bond, but this is great to see that they're kind of doing these like pop up appearances without any um fanfare or anything and you know that's good because it's the hardcore true fans that go to those screenings not expecting anything um right and then for you know somebody like her to show up and to do the q a and everything is great i think um it's almost like one of those secret concerts i i kind of wish this would happen more often because that's very spontaneous. It, uh, excuse me. It's like it. It's just it. It happens. It's in the moment, and it just it's it's great. And um, you know, I mean, she is one of my favorite Bond women. It's like I wish I could have gone. It's like if I known she was going to be there, maybe I would have tried to go there, but uh, probably not. But um, 
no, it was just, it, it, it sounded like everybody had a great time. Um, and obviously Prince Charles Theatre in the UK does a lot of routine Bond screenings. So mm. maybe we'll- Yeah, they did just a Goldfinger this week, I think. Mm. Uh, I was hoping to go, but I couldn't in the end. Um, yeah, but they've got um, License to Kill on soon, and then The World Is Not Enough later on in the year, which I shall definitely be going to. <laughs> Um, yeah, and there's also a theater in Atlanta um, that is showing 25 Bond movies, the 24 Eon films plus Never Say Never Again. They're mm. in the midst of uh, they're in the midst of all that. It's like you know, it's all this month, so um, mm. it sounds great. And apparently, like they're at seven, uh, during the week, Monday through Friday, it's like at 7 p.m., and then on the weekends, it's earlier. So. Yeah. Don't want to get in the way of those Marvel movies and stuff. Right. Yeah. But this, um, I think we'll probably see a lot more early next year in the run up to obviously Bond 25 being released. Mm. The Mm. idea that, you know, a cinema's dead on a Tuesday and a Wednesday. I mean, why not throw up um, some older movies? Um, yeah, you know, a bit different. Right, and and, and, and when you do it at two o'clock on a, in the afternoon, that's you know, it's even more dead. Um, right, because because you know what I, I remember, you know, when I was a kid, that cinemas they didn't just show the latest movies, right? But they, they used to, you know, they, uh, it's like Disney movies used to be scheduled for every half term and and school holiday, for that's example. Right. I remember. And that. so yeah. and and, and it, they would just be they would just be these old movies, these old classic movies, and they just be going around and around and around so um you know it was pre-video so you either saw films on on tv or you saw them broadcast on tv i mean or you saw them at the cinema but um there there was this thing that the they they would uh, they would put out uh, you know the the Jungle Book, for example, um, every 10 years or whatever, it, it would get an outing because there would be a new generation of kids who hadn't seen it. Right. And parents right. would take I, their kids. I think it was like every seven years was Disney strategy. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Seven, seven years makes sense as well, yeah. And, of course, you know, there were all the Bond double features, which, which were like every other year. Um, so it's like you'd have a new Bond movie, and then like in the off year, you'd have a double feature of older Bond movies. And that was great. It's like, so if you had like just become a Bond fan, you could get caught up pretty quickly um, over the course of three or four years. Yeah. So the one that I haven't seen on the big screen, which I'm desperate to, is Majesties. It's just never worked. Ah, it's just never worked. It's just never worked out for me. And it's my one of my top, 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 top films. Yeah, okay. Not just in the Bond, not just in the Bond series. And that's going to be on the 31st of the New Beverly. Oh, I. Oh, I mean, you've tempted me, Bill. <laughs> I can pop down to. I can literally pop down to LA in two hours. So yeah. on the plane. So you might you might want to think about it. It's yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Oh, I, I, I've, I've mentioned before that I, I, a couple of couple of or three years ago I saw it on the big screen in Barcelona and it, it was a bit of a, a scratched print but it was really really good to see on, on the big screen but the shame is that there were like 40 people in the audience and a massive massive screen so mm. not not that much um, not much um, uh, demand here for it and it was advertised and as i said on a previous installment um i saw it first run in 69 with you know my mom took Mm. me and then i i misquoted the year i think it must have been 73 that they had the majesties 
Diamond's double feature because I think that was like early in the year ahead of Live and Let Die coming out in the summer. But um, in any case, you know, it was like great. It was just I had a chance to see it twice in the theater. It's just and it, it's one of the Bond movies that you, sh- you should see in a theater. Thunderball, I would say, qualifies as yeah. well. Um, it, it's just, it, it should be seen that way at least once. All right. You've convinced me, Bill. I'm going to go on the 31st in LA. I think our, our fellow podcaster, Ben Williams is in LA right now. So yeah. I'm going to commit to this. I'm going to go and I'm going to throw it to our listenership. If you're in LA on the 31st, at 2 PM, let's all meet at the Beverly cinema and we'll buy you a beer or whatever. I made a point of telling Ben, it's like, Ben, you're in LA. Now you've got to go, you know, you've got to go there at least once. So. Yes, I will drag him along, and okay. uh, we'll see who shows. We'll see who shows yeah, up. So we can uh, we can expect a report on that then. Yes, look forward to it. So, is it what films do you guys? If you had to pick one that you hadn't seen on the big screen, what would be your top choice? <laughs> well, for me, for me, it is the world is not enough because that's still the only Brosnan film oh, I'm yet to see okay. on the big screen. So, uh, yeah, um, I'm trying to think of uh, some of the more classic ones. I think Majesties would be up there. Um, I've seen Spy Who Loved Me. I've seen Moonraker. Um, yeah, Majesties is up there. But, yeah, World Is Not Enough, uh, I'm very much looking forward to. Um, I've seen them all on the big screen, but I'd be happy to see any of them again on the big screen. Yeah, I would probably most like to see from Russia with love on the big screen and also Goldfinger you have appetite to watch Goldfinger again uh, yeah we, we've talked about this before actually yeah, yeah. Uh, on the big screen yes um, yeah. Uh, yeah maybe that's a Goldfinger fatigue I think is definitely a thing yes. in hardcore Bond fandom I mentioned this before it's like a friend of mine no longer with us he once said, like, I might be able to see Goldfinger one more time, but he wasn't sure. <laughs> I'm yet to reach that point. Yeah. I get, sometimes, sometimes I think it would be useful to have some kind of drug which uh, selectively erases memory so you can see a film fresh every time. <laughs> With um, that, and then on 26. <laughs> uh, it's like a mini Black Mirror episode. All right, so we should probably transition to do Bond 25 news. So if you don't want any um, spoilers, even though the only thing we're going to discuss has been in every newspaper. So um, Hmm. pause now and we'll see you on the other side. So the only real news, because we talked about the whole 007 casting um, in the last podcast we recorded with um, Ben and... um, Lisa and Cohen, Bill, um, was the filming in Scotland this week, which was rumored for a while that they were going to shoot up there. And by all um, accounts of what they're shooting, it looks just that they're picking up some scenes that are going to be set in Norway in the film. But they're just using Scotland probably because it's just logistically cheaper cheaper and easier. Yeah. You, you, you say that, James, use. but I was thinking maybe it's the other way around and, and the Norway scenes with on the Atlantic Road and the bridge and everything are actually supposed to be in Scotland. I think it's, I think it's less likely hmm. because of the bridge, but... Um, yeah, because, yeah. I mean, if... I didn't really know anything about that bridge 
before the location stuff started coming out. I hadn't heard of it before. And then when I saw it, I was like, oh, yeah, I've seen this in like a ton of car commercials and stuff. And yeah, and so. it, it, it's, it's kind of iconic, so it, it would be a bit weird if they did that, but uh, but you never know. Yeah. Also, in the latest batch of photos from that filming, um, there's a helicopter. What I could not figure out is, okay, does this helicopter actually play into this into the scene itself? Or is that just where the camera's filming from? And to be honest, I didn't really want to know, so I didn't go beyond that. Um, because the sun, I guess it's the Scottish edition of the sun, said, fantastic photos. And it's like, well, they didn't seem that fantastic. I mean, I've, I've, I've seen stuff filmed on TV in the 1970s where there was a helicopter flying mm-hmm. perilously close to cars. So it's like, is that re- that spectacular? People must be uh, suffering from the kind of a Bond 25 um, disaster fatigue, and now they, they need to talk it up a bit for a while. <laughs> yeah, and, and plus, you know, it's like I used to, like, enjoy when Bond movies were filming, and now it's like just – just let's get through this. Let's get it I'm, over with. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's really nothing to do with the filmmakers. It's having to do with all this stuff that accompanies it. It's just hmm. and and I feel bad saying that because it's like okay, it's like okay, once they're done filming, then then like okay, we're gonna like go through editing. There's not gonna be much publicity then, and it's just yeah. What they did from tomorrow never well, the world is not enough. Uh, tomorrow, I think they did in Tomorrow Never Dies 2 for the, for the latter Brosnan and the other kind. They um, did a series of blog posts on the official website, um, but they were released when the film was actually in post so that the last blog post was, we've wrapped filming, film comes out tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Great. But they, they kind of, they time shifted the coverage of the filming like three or four months so that you know, it, it the crescendo of the like the last hey, we filmed the last scene, and then the premiere was the next day. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Interesting, mm-hmm. but we're going to go as you say, Bill. We're going to have this vacuum now uh, from I think November till March, right? Of yeah. nothing, um, right? And, and and I will guess that okay, they'll make Daniel Craig available for some interviews right after filming is available, but they'll be embargoed until. End of March, yeah, say something like that, similar to that timeout interview that he did with the fa- with the infamous "I better cut my wrist" quote. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, you know it'll be something like that. You know, and again, I hate to say it, but just I'm, I kind of like I'll be glad when they're done, just because it's not anything they're doing; it's all this fan stuff that's accompanying it, and just. It's, it's not as much fun as it used to be. Yeah, and in terms of like negative, negative, um, right, negative presence on social media. When the film is about to premiere and the week that it's released, all of that will be completely drowned out by yes. the actual film coming out. Yep. Um, it's just it's just as right now when there's a vacuum of official stuff, there's nothing else to go around. Um, all of that kind of tabloid esque clickbaity stuff just gets magnified. Um, it, it's manic depressive kind of atmosphere. It's like, you know, incredible highs, incredible lows. And just, I mean, there's a guy I know, he was like, at one point he was, he was actually trying to get people interested in doing a, 
a petition to send to Eon, and then when he was dissatisfied, but then like stuff started to come out. Now he's happy and just like can we just mm. kind of <laughs> chill. This, I mean, it's just <laughs> the movie will be done when it's done, and you know. So was that like a telepathic a telepathic petition that worked? No, he <laughs> wanted to do a petition. He was like trying to get people interested, and I, yeah. But just just thinking about doing it, it just created enough uh, enough uh, psychic energy yeah. to transfer into into Eon's head. Yeah. And, and so they, all all the spoons in the Pinewood Canteen are bent now as well. Like <laughs> 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 it's kind like, of like Professor X from the X Men movies. Uh, trying to communicate. Hey, to Barbara Broccoli. Oh. <laughs> Not worth it. Just don't do it. Just calm down. Perhaps, perhaps <laughs> the most surprising thing about the news coverage of that filming in Scotland was the Scottish Sun, owned by Rupert Murdoch, had a positive spin <laughs> on the story. Mm. Apparently, they didn't yeah. get the memo that the Sun in in uh, London got um, from Rupert. Right. So that was, you know, unless you guys have seen anything else apart from um, Anna de Armas on. Instagram this morning. Yes. Having no hair. Yeah. yeah. Looking at it closely, yeah. lo- looking at it closely, it looks like a makeup job with a bald cap, but, um, mm. I, I, I think so. I think so. But I, uh, uh, I'm not a hundred percent sure about that, but, uh, well, we'll, we'll see. And yeah. She's Blofeld. It's clear. I think <laughs> yes. you know what to expect. There's, uh, no, there's there's one thing that I, I did want to say. It's because um, with the with the Scottish filming and they've got all these containers for everybody to uh, to stay in and yeah. Oh, yeah. and uh, I, I think this is this is where they've missed out because they, what they should have got is kind of um, the deep freeze storage and they could put the crew members in and just defrost them when they need them <laughs> and just suspended animation. But, so to, to me, to me, it's clear that Eon is trying to save money on Bond 25 at the moment. And um, in, in this past week, I've, I've had a bit of, a bit of time to, to think about uh, various things. And one of the, um, one of the things that kind of came out is that um, when when people who really know me uh, think of me that they, they know me for Bond, they also know me for for music of, of uh, various types, which usually they don't appreciate very much. And uh, one of my one of my favourite bands in, in the nineteen eighties was the Sisters of Mercy, which I, I've seen God knows how, how many times, and. Um, I was just I was just thinking it, it's a band that you would never say would be suitable to to do a, um, a Bond theme, but then my mind did something uh, completely weird, and I thought actually yes, they need to save money because they've got these containers, um, and we can do this. <laughs> they did a they did a um, a song. It was, it was released as a single, and it was on their first album called uh, No Time to Crime. They and so what they can do is they can re-record it, and they can give a name to Bond Twenty Five at the same time. And the so instead of No Time to Cry, it could be No Time to Die. Mm. And Bond Twenty Six can be No Time to Spy, so they save even more money. <laughs> <laughs> I, say, I told this joke to David. Um, sometime in the past week so it's like i can see some bond fans who do video blogs and say i'm in the same kind of 
I'm in the same kind of container that the Bond 25 crew is in, in Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> and you can be in one too. And you can be in <laughs> and then it shifts from being a hotel room to an echo chamber, doesn't it? <laughs> Maybe that's the uh, that charity competition when you win a win a, a Bond twenty five experiences. You you sleep in a container with with. A, with a- <laughs> <laughs> it, it could be the, it could be the new secret cinema experience, couldn't it? <laughs> and you could sleep in the same container with Michael G. Wilson. He's in the cot next to you. Oh, <laughs> can you turn off the light, please? I need to get my rest because I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> what any of what none of the newspapers failed to realize when they covered that story was there's literally not a hotel within 50 miles of that place. Yes, yeah. there's a reason for that. Yes. There's a reason they had to do it. We have to import these containers because there's no other place for the crew to stay. <laughs> it does beg the question, though. It must have been for budget reasons that they wouldn't shoot all of it in Norway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, yeah, and a, a lot of this film does seem to be uh, UK based and uh, you know with, with all the london it's just like london again yeah and don't forget Hi. don't forget cuba recreated at pinewood yeah right <laughs> it, it's sort of like uh extending the pattern that began with skyfall um and and it was no worse a film for it either right no mm. i i would agree with that it, it it doesn't matter there's a reason why in the u.s film industry they like did so much in los angeles because you had mountains you had oceans mm-hmm. you had all the Often it's like, and nobody's playing for like fifty years or longer. But uh, and that's why Kirk and Spock were always behind the same rock because um, <laughs> if any uh, little LA film tidbit, TMZ, where the trashy news outlet gets its name from, actually is a film t- uh, media term in LA for the thirty mile zone, and that's a thirty mile mm. radius from a certain intersection in Hollywood, and. If you shoot within it, you don't have to pay people's time and expenses to get to and from the location shoot. Right. Because what I always read about the man from Oakland was if they everything was filmed with a thirty mile radius of Culver City, California, mm-hmm. which was where the MGM Studios was, and if they went beyond that, then they had to pay extra. And so I don't know what the exact marking is, but uh, it's not, that's definitely related. I did not know that about TMZ, but it, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. So yeah, so you, uh, to your point, Bill Skyfall. I mean, they did a lot of it doubled and set based, and I, I don't think the film suffered in any way for it. And I'm actually quite looking forward to seeing how good, you know, Cuba, quote unquote, looks in Bond Twenty Five, um, mm. and and how well it and how well it gels with some of the location they shot and doubled in Jamaica. And I remember seeing some piece about oh, Roger Dinkins. Um, Dinkins did such a great job on Skyfall, which he did. But they were like citing the um, the Shanghai sequences. Well, like the Shanghai sequences in Shanghai were done by a second unit. It's like the interiors were done in England. Um, but yeah, if you've seen the behind the scenes shot of those two towers that they built inside the inside Pinewood, I think they did it on the 007 stage. Um, it's astonishing <laughs> that they basically constructed tower blocks just for that one sequence. Um, yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. 
But that, that that scene when when he arrives at the casino on that on the boat, that to me that just looks like it's shot in a set. It doesn't look it real was. at all. It was. No, yeah, no, no. I, I know it was on the set, but it, it looks like <laughs> it was shot on the set. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think uh, I think a lot of the, yeah. I, I'm I'm not a, I'm not a fan of Skyfall at all, but I, I do think the the photography was spectacular generally. But uh, mm. uh, that wasn't right. I don't actually thinking about it. The money and time they spent to spend to build that set of the entrance to the casino for that one shot uh-huh. was it needed? Mm, probably not. You know, mm. the one that always takes me out of it is when they pan down the um, the skyscraper, and it looks like Shanghai, 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 up city of London. Yeah. <laughs> you can tell by the trees, it's <laughs> London in like probably November or something, February. <laughs> But, but see, those of us like me who are ignorant of London geography, yeah. it's like, it looks okay to me. So <laughs> they're, they're, it's a percentage play. It's like, well, yeah. know this, but you know, all those people don't live in London won't, won't catch Oh, don't even get me started how they have a Wimbledon train, which is a Piccadilly line right. train going through Charing Cross Station. <laughs> oh, no, Temple Station, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Uh, Sure. The, 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 I, I, I was thinking about the, this thing in movies about how, you know, you, um, in Inspector the Rome uh, scenes, I, I was trying to put together a, um, a, an article on, on on where all the Rome scenes were shot. And it's just like the, the Aston Martin arrives driving the wrong way up a one-way street <laughs> and, and stuff like that. And and then, then the ne- next scene, it, it jumps across the city and it, it's quite interesting. And if if I ever managed to finish it, I, I mean, I started about two two or three years ago. If I ever managed to uh, finish it, it, it's quite quite interesting. But I remember years ago, like, like 15, 15, 16 years ago, I, I, um, I had a, a computer computer game it was a driving game and it was set in Barcelona and which was quite interesting because I was living in Barcelona at the time and it, it, it was quite amazing because it, it really felt like you were in Barcelona driving down the streets except it would have these jumps and you'd be in one part of Barcelona one second and then you'd be in a different type part of Barcelona driving along the same street and it, it was huh it, it was it was very very um God, I can't think of the word I'm looking for at the moment, but uh, it, it, it was startling in uh, because these were roads that I was used to driving. Disorientating? Disorientating, thank you, yes. Um, I'd say, okay, so last little bit, I'm going to take a straw poll here. When does everybody on the panel think that the title is going to be announced? Mm-hmm. Do you want to, does anybody want to guess a month? I'll guess August, late August. I'll go for November, October. I'll go October. Good grief. Um, What am I going to go for? Because it's difficult to compare with previous Bond films because we've always known what the title was recently. Yeah, despite Michael G. Wilson trying to whitewash history on it. And and, and we're (laughs) kind of out of... of, uh, s- sequence. Um, yeah, we're out of phase with everything. Else. Out of phase because of, of when it when it we started. So, oh, good grief! I would say if it were a normal Bond film, it would drop in about July. Um, but given that the start was delayed by what six months, we're August, September, November, December. Say January. 
Okay. December, January. I'm gonna well, go. I'm gonna go with September because hmm. um, the first trailer usually comes out just before they're finishing shooting, mm-hmm. and they're finishing shooting in October. So I'm gonna yeah. work backwards and say September. And I think yeah. the, ti- the title will be tagged to the trailer. I don't think they'll do it separately. I think it'll be trailer with title as one drop. Well, I agree with that. It's um, there was some thought it might be still in August because of this. Oh, it's not the Fast and the Furious latest installment. It's like you know what? I'm going to stand with August just because um, I find it amusing that I'm the optimist in this struggle. Dude, hang on, sir. Bill, to clarify, are, are you talking about August this year? Yeah. Okay. Well, August, August, August next year. August next year. <laughs> August fifteenth or later, twenty nineteen. They'll just call it Bond twenty five on the initial release, but it, it, when it goes to video, it'll be they'll give it, give it a proper title. Well, you know, we're, we've been delayed three times already, so mm. uh, who knows? Um, all right. I well. guess I keep thinking back to when, like Universal may not have felt they were maybe quite in the loop as they should have been. So, but if that's, if that's correct, and I'm not going to dispute that. Okay. They've had a couple months now to think about it. So, and they're going to do the uh, international distribution. So I'm sure they're working on it pretty hard. So whether it's August, September, October, whatever, it's probably going to be in there. All right. So speaking of titles, um, I found an interesting track to play us out in this week. It's a bit of a hip hop rap um, that incorporates every title of the James Bond series into one track. <laughs> so hold on to your hold on to your base. Uh, here it comes. This is not a Mad Magazine charity, or so. No, no. This is a actually a serious creative attempt to do okay. it. Okay. And I think they pull okay. it off, but I'll let you be the judges next week. So I want to take this time to say thank you to David, Calvin, and Bill for joining us. And thank you. Uh, and you know, we just made it up on the we made it up on the spot. But I'm going to commit Mr. Ben Williams to being there too. That we'll hopefully see some of you on July the 31st down in LA for a pre Honor Majesty Secret Service lunchtime martini somewhere. Um, if you're listening, get in touch with us with the hashtag AskBond, and we'll, we'll figure something out. Right, ask, guys, from Martin, ask from Martini. Yes, I'll, I'll be there in spirit. Trust All right. me. I'll be, <laughs> me I'll be in. I'll be in spirits. So. <laughs> <laughs> Full of spirits. <laughs> That's right. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be a Bond screening without like three stiff drinks. All right, guys. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you again next week. Thanks. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you, Bond. They call me 007, number one secret That's agent. Right. You need a job done, wire the payment. From the Caymans to England to Beijing. I keep a golden eye on things. I battle kings, mercenaries, and tyrants. Over nuclear weapons and black market diamonds. Guns are solid, breezing through traffic. Squeezing in the living daylight or blackness. Design of fabric supported from Italy. Sit down with diplomats, lunches in Sicily. Literally, I got the view to a kill. For your eyes only, though, you know the deal. The name is James, they call me Bond. And espionage, my game is strong. I get it on all across the world. In the end, I always win and leave with the girl. The name is James, they call me Bond. And espionage, my game is strong. I get it on all across the world. In the end, I always win and leave with the girl. From 
rush you with love, I send greetings. When I leave, a private jet to Sweden for more meetings. When I'm speaking, it's only the bosses. The man with the golden gun taking no losses. I be in Porsches, Bentleys, and Benzes. Aston Martins, my choices are endless. Study with ninjas, move stealth like a shadow. I live to die another day in the battle. I'm never rattled, my gold fingers on the trigger. Cause I live and let die, you dead. I never forgive, I never forget. If diamonds are forever, then so is respect. The name is James, they call me Bond. And espionage, my game is strong. I get it on all across the world. In the end, I always wear to leave with the girl. The name is James, they call me Bond. And espionage, my game is strong. Get it on all across the world In the end, I always win and leave with the girl They say tomorrow never dies okay. And if that's real what? I get you today, tomorrow I chill right. I climb the hills of Kilimanjaro Never say never again, that's the motto Full throttle, Casino Royale style Cause the road is not enough for now You know my style, flying in the fly whips Or over in Thailand with Thai chicks If I slip, it's good night, y'all You only live twice, then the sky might It's do or die, y'all. That means whatever. The name is Bond. Nobody does it better. The name is James. They call me Bond. And espionage, my game is strong. I get it on all across the world. In the end, I always wear to leave with the girl. The name is James. They call me Bond. And espionage, my game is strong. I get it on all across the world. In the end, I always wear to leave with the girl. James Bond.